Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited and honored to just be a part uh, of, of our team here at the church and to be able to serve alongside some incredible, um, you know, staff members here at the church. And I serve as the executive pastor of ministries, and I love everything that I get to do, but I love every opportunity I have to share God's word. And so I'll tell you this, I'm excited, I'm encouraged, and I woke up today believing that God's got a word for you. I really do. And the reason why I can sit here and confidently say that it has nothing to do with me, but the word that we're going to unpack today is ministered to me as well. So I'm believing that in, in the same way it will minister to you. Uh, we're in the second week of a sermon series, if you didn't know, called Moments with Jesus. Moments with Jesus. And what we're doing is we're looking at very specific moments that people had in the New Testament with Jesus and how those moments changed the trajectory of their life forever. So last week, Pastor Dustin kicked off the series. We were looking at Peter and Jesus and this interaction that took place between them when Jesus called Peter out of the boat to walk on water. If you didn't get a chance to listen or hear that message, um, you missed out. I'd encourage you to go online and, and check it out because it was an incredible way to kick off this sermon series. And I'll tell you today, we're going to stay in that same vein. We're going to look at another familiar story in the Gospels. Another familiar story that happens between Jesus and a man. But I'll tell you this, before I even give you the details of this story, I'm going to say this. This is one of those stories, right, that is familiar. And because it's familiar, you could easily tune out. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you've been a Christian for one moment or 100 years, but I want to encourage and challenge you today to lean in and believe that there's something that you can glean and receive from God's Word today. Can we do that? All right. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you guys believe there's power in moments? Right? There's power in moments. We know that. We believe that. It's true. There's power in moments. In fact, one of my favorite quotes on moments actually comes from Rose Kennedy, and it was John F. Kennedy's mom, and she famously said, life is not a matter of milestones, but of moments, but of moments. And that's deep when you think about it. And as I was preparing for this message, I'm like, that, that is a very profound and accurate way to describe our lives. It's not about milestones, it's moments. Because when you think back on your life, and that's what I want you to do. You can't necessarily, like if you're looking at your wedding day, for example, I guarantee for those of you that are married, you think about your wedding day, you do not have a complete memory of the day in its entirety. From the time you woke up to the time you went to bed, you can't recount every second of every day, but you can recount moments in that day. Moments are powerful. Moments are what we remember. Our life is a collection of moments. And in life, there are good moments, and there's not so good moments. You know, thinking about that in the wedding day, I remember, I remember the moment that I was standing there at the altar, uh, ready to get married. I remember what it smelled like, what it felt like. I remember the nerves, the excitement, the fear, you know, that borderline I'm about to throw up feeling, right? I remember that. I could put myself in that moment, and I could recount that. It was good. I can recount that, but I really can. I can, I can feel it all. Again, that moment. It's memorable. I also, if you're a parent in the room, you can think back on the moments that your children were born and what that felt like, that experience. I, I cherish all of my kids' births, but one of them in particular stands out to me. My 14-year-old daughter, Britton, when she was born, my wife, Marion, had to have an emergency C-section. And because it was an emergency, 
She had to be put under anesthesia, and because of that, she was out and unconscious, and I was able to spend the first hour of Britain's life, which is her and I. The doctors handed Britain to me, and I held her for an hour, and it's a moment that I will remember, and it's a moment I cherish when I think about my children's births. Moments. There are good moments in life, but like we said, there are, are not so good moments in life as well. You think about life and some of those not so good moments. I remember, and if you're over, I can't do the math. If you're an adult in this room, you'll remember where you were on September 11th, 2001. Yeah, and that moment, and what you were doing, where you were. You know, I remember I was in the classroom. I was in class, and you know, a teacher rushes in, and we get the news, and I'll never forget what it felt like in that moment. But on a personal level, I'll never forget the moment that my grandmother took her last breath on this side of heaven. Moments. Moments are memorable. Moments are powerful. We remember moments. We don't remember days. Like in life, Scripture is full of good moments and some not-so-good moments. But Scripture is also full of moments where Jesus interrupts the narrative in a miraculous way. When he jumps into a situation with a specific person, interrupts the narrative and changes the trajectory of their lives. Moments. One of those moments is actually found in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. You can turn your Bibles if you've got it. You can turn to John chapter 11. And again, this is a very famous story. It's a very famous moment in the ministry of Jesus. It's the story of Lazarus. Lazarus. So right out the gate, a lot of you that are Christians can say, hey, I've heard this before. I know where this is going. I understand this story. I'm not going to learn. But again, I'm going to challenge and encourage you to lean in and believe that God has a word for you. And if you don't know, I'll tell you a little bit about this story, Lazarus. Okay, What you want to know from Jump is that the word Lazarus, it's a guy's name, but it means the one who God helped. That's what Lazarus means, the one who God helped. And if you know anything about the story, Lazarus, you know that that's an understatement. Right? You know that he, he did more than help Lazarus. The story of Lazarus in the Gospel of John in chapter 11 is 44 verses long. 44. Long story. It takes up almost the entirety of this chapter in John. What's so interesting is that in this entire story, Lazarus doesn't speak a single word. Right, doesn't speak because there's not one word that Lazarus speaks in these 44 verses. And if you don't know why, it's because he's dead. Um, that's the whole point of the story. Lazarus is dead. And then this story, though, these 44 verses are leading to this one miraculous moment where Jesus comes onto the scene and brings what's dead back to life. He resurrects Lazarus. We see that in that story, and that's what the story is leading up to. But although the story, like I said, in your Bibles, it's probably called Jesus Resurrects Lazarus. Although in the story, Lazarus is a central figure, this story isn't exclusively about Lazarus. And I think that's the misconception. It's not just about Lazarus. The story is about Mary and Martha, who are his sisters and also there. The story is about the disciples that are there. This story is about Jesus, who's there on scene to interrupt the narrative and perform the miracle of resurrection. But the story is also about us. There's, there's, there's a story of us 
in this story of Lazarus, you and me. Because the truth is, is there's a Lazarus inside every single one of us. When we really think about it, when we do an inventory of our lives, there's a Lazarus in every single one of us. A Lazarus is the thing in our lives that looks dead, that looks too far gone, that you have written off, that other people said is no longer possible, that other people have told you, hey, it's time to give up on that thing and move on. The Lazarus could be a dream. The Lazarus could be a hope. The Lazarus could be a plan that you feel like God gave you. What is your Lazarus? We all have a Lazarus. A Lazarus could be a relationship. You might be in the room today and think, hey, you know, my Lazarus is my marriage. It's on the rocks. I've tried everything that I know how to try feels like it's dead. You might be in the room today saying, I don't even know if I believe in Jesus. That could be your Lazarus, your Lazarus. I lost my faith. But what is that thing that you wish still had life? See, a Lazarus is something that needs a miracle to live again. Lazarus needs a miracle. And in John chapter 11, we read about this story. Like I already said, I gave you the spoiler. He doesn't stay dead. He's resurrected. But the story opens up, and we read in the Gospel of John. And the Bible says that now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. I'm going to stop right there for a second. John is doing something very intentional here. He's showing the intimate relationship between this family, these sisters, this brother, and Jesus. He's letting us know that this isn't some stranger named Lazarus. These aren't just some people named Mary and Martha. These people know Jesus. They know him well. This is the same person that I'm going to mention. This is the same person that's mentioned in other Gospels. These guys were central figures in Jesus' life. So much so that anytime Jesus was, Jesus was in Jerusalem, a lot of times he would stay on the outskirts with this family in this town called Bethany. They were intimately connected. They were close. They knew each other well. It goes on to say in verse 4, but when Jesus heard, okay, the message came to Jesus that Lazarus was ill, but when Jesus heard, uh, heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5, now, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was in. See, right out the gate, we're introduced to this family. We understand the intimate connection between Lazarus, Jesus, Mary, Martha. We hear it, we see it, we catch that Lazarus is ill. It's very clear he's ill. So much so that what happens? The sisters send word to Jesus and they don't say, Jesus, come quick, right? Lazarus is sick. He needs your help. They just simply say, the one you love is ill. They know because of how close they are that Jesus will respond to that. They send word. And this is what I want to draw your attention to is not the obvious narrative of the story of what's happening, but the underlining narrative of what you don't see is that they send word. And this is the moment that the clock started ticking for Mary and Martha. What do I mean? I mean, it's in this moment that they begin to wait on a miracle. It's in this moment, right here. He's sick. Let's send word. Let's believe. 
And that's exactly what we see in this story. We see this happen because when you fast forward, you fast forward to, to when Jesus arrived and he gets on scene. What we see is we see this interaction take place between Jesus and Mary and Jesus and Martha. Two separate conversations. They didn't happen together. They happened apart. They're separated by several verses. But I want to show you, although they were different, different conversations, they both said the same thing. They both said the same thing. They said this. So we read. It says, uh, in uh, verse 21, the story, it says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then Mary, in verse 32, the Bible says that Mary came to where Jesus was and, and uh, saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing. And honestly, in our humanity, it's easy for us to empathize with their feelings and what they're saying here. It's easy for us to put ourselves in their shoes and to to really understand the weight and the gravity of what they're saying in this moment. The feeling of, if you only would have been here sooner, this wouldn't be the case. We can identify with that because those would be our feelings. And when we think about this story, it's easy to empathize because this is what happened. Again, they had a problem. Mary and Martha had a problem, right? They sent word to Jesus. They believe. And still, Lazarus dies. And a lot of times and in a lot of our own lives, when we're talking about that thing, that Lazarus for us, maybe, again, it's a relationship that that something happens. You have a problem in a marriage. You have a problem with your spouse. You run into a brick wall. You feel like you can't get past. It's at the end of a dream and you feel like it's no longer possible to do what you thought God was calling you to do. Maybe it has to do with the plan or, or just something that you thought God put inside of you that's no longer even possible to happen. But you get, you have a problem and you get to the end of that problem. And what do we do? We pray. We send word, just like they do. We believe. And still, there are times when that dream, that hope, that relationship dies. And the truth is, is just like Mary and Martha in that story, what happens is that we stop believing when our Lazarus stops breathing. And that's what happened with Mary and Martha, is Lazarus stops breathing. Breathing and they stop believing. Why do I say that? You can see it in their responses. If you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. That in that moment doesn't seem like a response full of faith. They, 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 they embody the very spirit and they embody the very uh, response that we would have in our humanity. Because when our Lazarus dies, again, whatever that is for you in your life, when that dies, Our default, our default setting is for our belief to die with it. It's the default for all of us. And here's the truth when you're looking at this story, and I I, kind of like hesitate to say this, but we'll unpack it in a moment. But the truth is, the thing we need to remember is just like Lazarus' story doesn't end in death, ours won't either. It won't. Our story will not end in death. Now, that might sound like an easy thing for me to say now, 
because I'm not going through some of the things that you're going through or the dream or the hope or the relationship might seem that dead that it's impossible. But what I know is that we serve a God of the impossible and that God has dominion and authority to resurrect what's dead and bring it back to life. And our journey, our journey to resurrection starts with that understanding. It starts at that point. We have to believe just like the story of Lazarus Ours won't end in death either. But what do we do? What do we do when we're in between the death of something and its resurrection? That's the question. What do we do in the waiting? What do we do when we're waiting? I've titled this message, if you're taking notes, I've titled this message, Waiting on a Resurrection Moment. Waiting on a Resurrection Moment. And we talk about waiting a lot in church because waiting is a part of kind of the journey that we're on as Christians. It happens a lot in life, but I don't know about you, but waiting is not something that I like to do. In fact, I really dislike waiting. In fact, I'd even say in church, I hate waiting. You might say hate is a strong word, and I would say I hate waiting. So I, I, I just, it's just the truth, and I don't want to sound that impatient. So by a show of hands, does anybody else just not like to wait? Right? This is, you guys are so good. Thank you so much. In the last service, I had to ask the question as a follow-up, uh, who in here likes to wait? And nobody raised their hand. So I'm like, okay, exactly. Every single one of you does not like to wait. So they raised their hand. But yes, none of us like to wait. In fact, when I think about waiting, honestly, I, I get the image when I think about like waiting in relationship to, to hell. This is a true story. I picture hell as a, a never-ending line leading to anywhere, leading to nowhere. I picture as a never-ending line leading to nowhere. I also can picture hell at times when I think about it as uh, the waiting room at the MVD. Yeah, um, the lobby, you're sitting there. It's been, what, five, six, seven, eight, 12 hours, and you're there, and there's all kinds of stuff happening, and then you get to the window finally, and what do they say? You don't have the right paperwork. You have to come back tomorrow and do it again. Yeah, that's, that is my, like, interpretation of what hell will be like, and so I really, I really dislike waiting, but what happens when waiting is part of God's plan? What happens when it's part of God's plan? See, that's, that's what we see here in John chapter 11. Because when Jesus, follow me here, when Jesus, going back to the beginning of the story, when Jesus gets word that Lazarus is ill, right? What happens? This is what he says. He says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. What's so cool is Jesus is already setting the stage for a miracle. He's explaining to people there, and he knows because he's God and he's outside of time that we would read that and understand what's about to take place at the end of the story. He's saying, hey, this, he's not going to end in death because the Son of God, so that the Son of God will be glorified through it. But then he goes on to say in 5, he says, Now Jesus loved Mary, uh, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so... Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. I know if you're a Christian and you've heard this before, it is one of those things that can mess with you a little bit. So, I know they need me, so I'm going to wait. It doesn't say, but I can accept if I'm honest. I can accept, hey, I love them so much. I know he's sick, but. I had, to get, I had to stay two days because I got held up, performing some miracles, healing some people, doing some Jesus things. I, but I got held up. It doesn't say but. It says so. The Bible's very clear. It says so. Jesus loved them so much 
So he waited two extra days where he was. In other words, Jesus loved them so much that he didn't come when they wanted him to. He didn't come when they expected him to. He didn't even come when they needed him to. He didn't. And that could mess with your theology a bit because the truth is, a lot of us, what happens is we end up thinking a certain way about Jesus and our circumstances. We end up seeing our circumstances the wrong way. What ends up happening for a lot of us at different times is that we have the tendency to interpret the love of God through our circumstances rather than interpreting our circumstances through the love of God. It happens to us often, right? It happens to us often. And not just the new believer, not just the non-believer, but the believer of 50 years. We could fall into this category. We, we have the tendency to look at what's happening around us, right, and use that a frame, as a framework to explain how much God loves us or un, how unhappy he must be with us. I'll, I'll say it this way. What, what we'll do a lot of times, what we'll do is we'll look at what's happening all around us and, and we'll think, hey, because this is happening in my life, because this thing is not so good, God must not be happy with me. Or we might say things like, I must be doing something wrong. Or what can I do better? Where can I improve? Like all of a sudden, God can love us any more than he already does. But we do that. That's our natural tendency, our natural leaning as, as people. Instead, instead of looking at all that's happening around us and saying, in spite of what's happening, I know that God loves me. Or even more bolder, and what's happening here is because of what's happening, I know that God loves me. You talk about an acknowledgement that takes faith and courage. Think about that. Because of what's happening, God loves me. What do you mean? Because of my sickness, God loves me? Because I prayed for something and it didn't happen, God loves me? Because I thought he gave me this dream and this hope for the future, and it's not, what I, it's not panning out to be what I thought it would be, God loves me? Well, that's exactly what verse 6 is illustrating exactly what the Word of God is showing us in this moment. Verse 6 perfectly illustrates this. It says, because, because he loved them so much, he waited. So he waited. His love for them was directly tied to his decision to delay. That's what we see when we look at verse 6. His love was tied directly and specifically for his decision to delay. And when you're confronted with that reality, you have to ask yourself why. Why? Why would that be the case in my situation? And I can't answer universally, but I can give you some examples and context in Scripture as to why in this moment Jesus waited. When you look at this story, you look at Lazarus and this death that took place, there's a bigger, again, a bigger story that's unfolding in this moment. What we know is we know that at that time, in the first century, uh, there was sects of Jewish believers that had very um, specific beliefs around the soul. They had this mysticism, this mystical belief about the soul after a person died. Some people believed at that time that what would happen is that after the person died, the soul would linger around the body for up to three days. And if any, so up to three days before, before uh, the soul would ascend to heaven. Okay, so we're following me here. So if Jesus would have showed up to perform a miracle or day one or day two or day three, what we know is that Jesus showed up on day four, okay? 
if he would have showed up on day one, two, maybe even when Lazarus was sick, three, after he died, people there, somebody there, a Jewish believer there, a Jewish person there could have said that that wasn't a miracle. They could have chalked it up to the soul just returning to the body. Okay? But Jesus showing up on the fourth day in this story was intentional because what he was showing the people here is that this isn't just some random occurrence where the soul is going back to the body. I, as the son of God, have dominion and authority over death itself, and I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to show you. That's what Jesus is ultimately doing there because we know that's the case because earlier, think about this. I'm not saying anything that's not in the Bible. He tells the disciples, this will not end in death. Why? So the Son of God could be glorified through it. Right? He says what's going to happen. He says what's going to happen. But here, check this out. This moment wasn't just so that he could show Mary and Martha and the disciples that he was who he says he was. What the Bible is clear on in verse 18 is that there was other people there. Verse 18 shows us. It says, now Bethany, like I said, was, was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And what? Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. See, Jesus' miracle was greater than Lazarus. It was greater than Mary and Martha in this moment. It was greater than the disciples. Jesus' delay wasn't the denial of a miracle. It was a setup for a greater one. It was a setup for a greater work. It was a setup for a greater miracle. Did Mary and Martha know that on, that on this side of the issue? No, but Jesus did. And Jesus made it very clear, hey, this is not going to end in death. I got this. I got this. I got this. Maybe in your own life. Just maybe. I don't know. There could be another reason, but maybe in your own life, the reason why the thing you've been praying for hasn't happened yet. The reason why your Lazarus is still dead is because Jesus is waiting to do something greater in your life. Greater than you might even know. Greater than you might even have, again, the perspective for on this side of the resurrection. You know, if your resurrection moment feels like it's delayed, I want you to remember these words. These words are from the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, and it's a message translation, but this is a, a verse that's ministered to me at different times when I feel like there could be a, a delay to what I think God is wanting to do in my life. But Peter said this, he said, God isn't late with his promises as some measure lateness. And you can stop right there. That's good enough for me. Goes on to say, he is restraining himself on account of you, holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. And that's what we see. Yeah, we can give God praise for that. And that's what we see exactly taking place in this story, right? It's a perfect picture of this story because that's the whole point is that Jesus was going to be glorified. The Son of God would be glorified by resurrecting Lazarus. There were people gathered there that might not believe or might not even think that this was a possibility or Jesus was who he says he was. And so we see this verse here in 2 Peter come to life. He'll delay it. He'll hold it back because he doesn't want anyone lost. Doesn't want anyone lost. So if you're in this room today, I want you to know that a resurrection of your Lazarus is possible. But it's going to require some things from you. The first thing it's going to require is a, a resurrection is possible. But faith, we have to know that faith is a prerequisite for the resurrection. 
It's possible, but faith is a prerequisite for it. You know, in verse 39, we see in this story, as we follow this narrative, Jesus is there and he's talking with Martha. They're at the gravesite. They're uh, he's already had the conversations with both sisters. They, they, they go to the gravesite in verse 39. And what does Jesus say the second he gets on scene at the tomb of Lazarus? The first thing out of Jesus' mouth in that moment was, Scripture says, roll away the stone, is what Jesus says. Roll away the stone. Martha responds like any person would. She says, Jesus, I don't think you get it. This is the Nick version. I don't think you understand. He's really dead. He even started decomposing. It's been four days. Like, I don't know if you want to do that. He's going to smell bad. But I always love the King James take on this. If you're familiar with the King James, the King James version says that Martha said, he stinketh. And so um, I just, I like that wording. So I decided to throw that in there. He stinketh. So um, yeah, use that in your everyday speak now. Um, But what's so crazy is that after she says that in response to Jesus saying, roll away the stone, Jesus' response to her is, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? This is one of those subtle moments in Scripture that we can blow past so easily. Because what I want to draw your attention to in this verse and in the words of Jesus is the word if. If in Scripture and if in this moment specifically is a conditional word. It's a conditional word. What does that mean? It means that it's going to require something from us. It's going to require something from you. If you believe the resurrection is possible. If. It's a conditional word that requires something from us. I picture, I picture this interaction going this way. You know, Jesus is there, and I picture him saying something like, earlier, Martha, I responded to your doubt by saying in verse 23, your brother will rise and live again. I even took it one step further, Martha. I told you that I am the resurrection and the life. Do you trust me? That's what I picture Jesus telling her. Do you trust me? And, and, and I believe Jesus is asking us the same thing when we're waiting on a resurrection moment. We're waiting on something that was dead to be brought back to life. Do you trust me? That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. It's possible if you believe. He's implying that in order for us to receive, we have to believe first. Now, what I want to make clear is that this isn't just a name it and claim it, right, gospel. That's not this. This is the gospel. These are the words of the Bible. They're not my words. But what we have to remember is there are times that God might not answer the prayer that we think he should answer in the way that we think he should answer it, okay? Even if we believe. But I can promise you one thing, that God won't do it if you don't believe. He won't if you don't. That rhymes, but it also makes sense. He won't if you don't. And we see that throughout scripture in the stories and in the encounters that Jesus has with people. We see it in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. We see it in the epistles of Paul. There's this truth this underlining truth of this thing we call Christianity. And guess what that is? It requires faith. It requires belief. It's not that it's suggested. It's required. It's a required, required thing from us as followers. We see it all over, but in Hebrews chapter 11, we see in verses 1 and 2 and in verse 6, it says this, in regards to faith and belief. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Faith 
is, is important. What this is saying is that our, the patriarchs, our grandfathers, our grandmothers, the heroes of the faith that have gone before us, what they were known for, what we, what we acknowledge about them, what we celebrate in them is their faith. In verse 6, it goes on to say, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must what? Believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We've got to believe. Again, this isn't saying essentially it's going to happen the way you want, when you want, how you want. We know that it's true in our lives, but we also know that based off of what the story of Lazarus is telling us. But it will happen the way God planned it to happen, right? Sometimes it'll be greater. A lot of times it'll be greater than we thought, but it won't happen if we don't believe that it's possible. See, God doesn't need us. Jesus doesn't need us to perform miracles. It's not like our faith is like the supercharger for him that gives him the power to do something. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying this is the system that God set up. God set up the system that belief and faith are required. He's in charge. We got to remember this. He's in charge of the resurrection. He's in charge of the resurrection. It's not us. It's not us. But we have to have faith if we want to see that resurrection take place. You know, if you're in this room and you're in need of a resurrection moment, we've got to remember second that, that action is necessary. Action is necessary. You know, it's interesting when you look at this story, as we continue to go through it, the first thing that Jesus says when he gets onto the scene is roll away the stone. Roll away the stone. And this is, again, one of those subtle things that you can easily fly by, but it's subtle, yet it's very significant. Because here Jesus is, picture this. Here Jesus is. He's the calmer of the storm. He's the healer of the sick. He's about to resurrect a guy that's been dead for four days, right? And yet he's saying, hey, someone else roll away the stone. He's asking for help for somebody else to roll away the stone. Now, this is so significant because I, I feel like in this moment, I get these pictures, and I have a tendency to over-dramatize things, but I get this moment that Jesus, you know, should have, like, walked up and used, like, his Jesus powers to just push the stone, stone to the side, just like, psh, 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 like a Jedi, a Jesus Jedi. Um, just, <laughs> so weird. Jesus moved the stone to the side, right? That, that, that's the image that we get. He could have. I mean, like I said, he calmed the storms. He did all of these things. But in this moment, when it seems something so so normal almost, he says, hey, roll away the stone. Roll away the stone. And, and like I said, that understanding and that thing has messed with me because although he can, it's very clear that he doesn't. But this, guys, is such a clear picture of the partnership that we have between, or the partnership between Jesus and us. It's a clear picture of the partnership that we have with Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one that resurrects things, but it's up to us to clear the way. It's up to us to clear the way. Jesus easily could have moved the stone out of the way. It wasn't a task for him or a chore for him. In fact, it would have made his story look even cooler. People would have started believing before the resurrection if he would have made the stone move, right? But it's important and it's significant and it means something. It means something. And it paints this picture again of this partnership. He does the resurrecting, but we've got to clear the way. We've got to clear the way. Because in this story, this stone, think about this. We're going to get deep. Think about this. This stone, the stone is standing in the way 
of Jesus and the miracle. The stone is what's in the way. And in the very same thing in our own lives, there are stones. There's a stone standing in the way in a lot of instances between you and what God wants to do in your life. That stone looks different to different people, but that stone could be doubt. That stone could be fear. That stone could be resentment. It could be bitterness. It could be, it's not my fault, it's his. It's not my fault, it's hers. That stone could be just the fear of putting yourself out there again after being rejected time and time again. That fear, that, that, that stone could be doubt that you even heard from God to begin with. The stone can look like anything, but it's what's standing in between you and the miracle that God is wanting to do. What is that stone in your life? What is that stone standing in between you in that resurrection moment? I know when I think about my life, I can think about several moments where there was something in the way. One moment comes to mind. When I, when I became a Christian, I knew at the time that I became a Christian that I was going to be in ministry. I didn't know what ministry was. I didn't know what pastoring was. I showed up to church for a girl, not for church, and I ended up finding Jesus. Yeah, that, that's really what happened, right? I ended up finding Jesus, and I had no idea that I was going to be uh, in ministry, but I just knew in that moment that there was something, I should say, there was something calling me to this thing. And I knew that that was going to be my future, but I didn't even understand what it meant. So I just did what I thought you needed to do. I started serving everywhere I could. I, I got involved with the church. I was, you know, leading a small group. I was serving in youth. I was serving in our young adult ministry at the time. I was, I was everywhere, okay? Just doing, I was on the worship team. I was doing it all. I mean, any opportunity I could get to serve, I was serving. And I was thinking to myself, hey, this, this calling that Jesus put on my life, man, that's going to happen in days. That's going to happen in weeks. And I know I'm going to be in vocational ministry, ministry as my job soon. God told me. He told me it's going to happen. Then a year goes by. Then three years go by. Five years go by. Eight years go by. And here we are, almost 10 years into this thing. And by this point, I, I had to get married. I, had, I got married. I had to find a job. I got married. I didn't have to. It was so good. I'm so, yeah, I didn't say that last time. I got married. It's great. But I had to find a job <laughs> to make money. Let me, let me fix this real quick. I had to find a job to make money. And it wasn't ministry. And I remember just being so bitter, so frustrated. And I remember just questioning everything. You know, did I really hear from God? Was it God's voice that I heard? I thought this thing should have happened by now. It was clear to me, or at least I thought it was, that I miss here. Bitterness had, had, had taken root. Frustration had taken root. And there were many seasons when I didn't even want to necessarily serve, at, let alone serve a church, even come to church because I was just so bitter that things hadn't happened the way that I thought they should. I remember I was at a small group, plug for small groups, get into small group. I was at a small group, and there was somebody in my life that had known about this journey, known about my story, known that I had this call and this passion and ministry, and that believed along with me that God was going to do something in my life. And I was sharing with this guy, I'll never forget this, this is true, sharing with this guy about this opportunity that I had to take a job that was going to take me away from here to Oregon. I was a job working for Nike uh, before I was in ministry. I, I was a human resource guy. I went to school for it. And I was getting ready to take this job that took me away. I was excited when I was telling him this thing, telling him about this job, the opportunity, what it was going to entail. And 
I was excited. I'll never forget what he said to me in the moment. He looked at me with a straight face, and there was an excitement on that face. But he said to me, again, knowing my story, he said, he said, Nick, can I ask you a question? And I said, yes. And you just know when someone says that, it's going to be a heavy question. But he asked me the question. He said, did God change his mind about your future? And I said, no. And he responded by saying, well, why did you? Why did you? Why did you? And what I had to come face to face was, was that in that moment, in that moment, I had let this stone of doubt stand in between me and what God wanted to do in my life. And it wasn't until I was able to acknowledge that there was a stone, take action to roll that stone of doubt out of the way that I made room for Jesus to be the resurrecting God that he is, to bring that hope, to bring that passion, and to revive this calling and passion that he put in my heart years ago. And that was 11 years ago that that took place. But it's one of those hallmark moments in my life that I'll remember forever because it changed the trajectory of my life. I, I emotional last time. That was weird. Um, it changed the trajectory of my life. And so I just, I, I wonder, when you're looking at your life and you're looking at the dream, your Lazarus, the future, the hope, the relationship that seems dead, that seems so far gone. My question is, is what's the stone that's standing in the way and preventing the blessing of God to take place? What's that stone that God is expecting you to move out of the way so that a miracle could happen? See, God, again, doesn't need us, but he chooses to include us in this process. But what I love about our God is that although belief is a prerequisite, God will meet us at the place of our unbelief. We know that it takes belief for a miracle to take place, but God is so good and so loving that he knows that in our humanity, sometimes we need help getting there. So he's willing to come to our place of unbelief and meet us right there. And we see that here in this story. We see it when Jesus says in verses 34 and 35 of the story, he says, where have you laid him? Speaking to Lazarus. The response he got was, come and see. Lord, come and see. See, there's a very important takeaway in this moment. A very important thing for us to draw our eyes to is that Jesus in this moment isn't simply asking the people there, asking Martha there, where did you lay him? Because he wants to know. He's asking them, where did you lay him? Because he wants to be taken to him. He wants to be taken to Lazarus. In other words, he's saying to Martha, he's saying, take me to the thing that's dead. He's saying, take me to the cause of your pain, Martha. Take me to the place that you stopped believing. And the Bible says that the response that he was giving Okay, Lord, come and see. Man, and I wonder, in our moments, when we're waiting on a resurrection, we're waiting on the, the resurrection of a dream, we're waiting on the resurrection of a relationship, I'm wondering, are there people in this room that have the faith like Martha did in this moment to say, come and see? When you're in need of a resurrection, when you're in need 
of something to be brought back to life. We have to be willing to allow Jesus to meet us at our place of unbelief, but even deeper than that, meet us at our place of pain, meet us at the place where that dream died. We have to be vulnerable enough to know that it's not gonna be comfortable, it's not gonna be easy, it means that we have to come face to face with it again, but it's a required step in this process because Jesus wants to meet you at that place. Jesus wants to meet you at your place of unbelief, but we have to be willing to respond that same way and say, come and see. Even if it seems impossible, even if it seems too far gone, we have to be willing to say that. Matthew 19, 26 says this, but Jesus looked at them with, uh, with people, and he's talking about miracles. He says, as for, as for it depends on them, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And when we look, that, look at that in light of the story of Lazarus, it makes so much sense. When we think about that in light of our own lives, we have to remember that although things might seem really dead, they might look really dead, they might smell really dead. We serve the God of the resurrection. The God of the resurrection. And as we close today, I just want to say this. What I love about this story, what I love about this moment and this picture is that Jesus so clearly says in this story, in this moment, he doesn't say that he's a, a God or he believes in a resurrection or a resurrection is possible. He says he is the resurrection and the life. What does that tell us? It tells us that resurrection is in his nature. It's who he is. We serve a God that wants to resurrect the hope and the dream that's in your life. We serve a God that loves you enough to look at your situation and say, hey, it's not dead. I know it seems dead. I know it might feel dead. I know for all intents and purposes, you might think it's dead. Hey, I know what that doctor said. Hey, I know what that counselor told you about this. I know what that marriage coach told you. I know that person said, hey, you've given it your best shot. It's time to give up. Hey, let's move on. I know what other people have said. I want to tell you, hey, I know what Jesus said. Jesus said that he is the resurrection, and he wants to resurrect the thing that's in your life. What is that, Lazarus? With every head bowed and eyes closed, I want to pray for some people in this room today. But Lazarus, what is that thing that's dead that you wish was still living? What I want you to do is I want you to think about your life. I want you to take an inventory of your heart right now, and I want you to think about that. And like I said, it could be a lot of things. It could be your faith. Maybe you lost your faith at some point on this journey. Maybe you lost hope. Maybe God gave you just a plan that you were sure was him, but the circumstances around you and the years have passed, it feels like it wasn't. Maybe for you, you've been not waiting four days, but you've been waiting 40 years for something to happen. Maybe it's a child that's, you know, far away from God. Maybe it's a relationship, a mom and daughter, a son and father relationship that you've kind of just written off at this point. I believe that Jesus wants to be the resurrecting God in your situation, like he was the resurrecting God in Lazarus's. And we're gonna believe that and pray for that here in just a second. But if that's you and you're in this room and you, you're, as you're thinking, you, you can recall, you can recount, you can remember, you can acknowledge that there's a Lazarus in you. What I want you to do is slip your hand up. No one's looking around. Go ahead and raise your hand for me. I want to pray for you specifically today. Hands are going up everywhere. There's something dead that you wish was alive. Something dead that, that you had faith for, but that you've lost faith for. Hey, I'm believing right now. Keep your hand up just a little bit longer. 
I'm believing right now in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, that the resurrection begins today. In Jesus' name, that you begin to find the breakthrough that you're seeking. In Jesus' name, that relationships are restored. In Jesus' name, that people are healed. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, I'm praying right now that dreams come back, that people dream again, that people have passion again, that people have plans again, that people hold on to the promises of God that might have been said 40 years ago. In Jesus' name today. Second group of people with every head bowed and eyes closed are the people in this room that don't know Jesus. You say all of this stuff sounds cool, sounds good, but I don't even know if I believe. I believe that you're not here on accident. I believe that if there's only one person in this room that responds to this, it's enough. And it's why we do this. This is the most important moment of any service in this moment when people's eternities are changed forever. I believe that, again, you're not here on accident. I believe that God divinely appointed this moment for you. I've been praying for you. We've been praying for you as a team, as a staff, and we're believing your best days are ahead. But if you're in this room, you're in this room, and today you're saying, hey, I'm going to recommit. I want Jesus to resurrect my faith. I want you to raise your hand. If you're in this room, in the same way you say, I've never believed, but I'm willing to give this Jesus thing a shot. On the count of three, I just want you to slip your hand up, not long enough, or just long enough for me to see you and acknowledge you. Then you can put it right back down. One, I see already hands are going up already. Two, three. Hands up. I see you. I see you up there in, in the stadium seats. Thank you. I see you, sir. Ma'am, I see you. Anyone else? I see you down here at the front. I see you up in the stadium seats. Hands are going up. I see you guys up there. I see you down here. I see you guys over on the end. This is your moment. Anyone else before we close? Anyone else? I see you up there. Here's what's so cool. It doesn't matter if I saw you. Jesus saw that hand. And we're believing the best is yet to come for you in your story. Father, we thank you, Jesus, for everything that you've done, everything that you're doing, God. Right now, Jesus, there are people in this room that made a decision to give their lives or recommit their lives to you. And what we know is that heaven is rejoicing right now, Jesus. God, in our prayers for blessing and favor over them and their stories, Jesus. And God, we pray for every person in this room that is feeling the weight of waiting on a resurrection, God. We pray that we remember that it's going to require us to have faith. It's going to require us to take action, Jesus, and that we have to be willing to take you to the place that hurts, the cause of our pain, and the thing that's dead, because it's you who does the resurrecting. And we declare that and speak that in faith, and in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen.